Chapter Two, Part One of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two Neighbors, Part One. The Summers Callcott acquaintance did not progress very rapidly after the affair of the dahlias. Mrs. Callcott asked Mrs. Summers across to look at their cottage, and Mrs. Summers went. Then Mrs. Summers asked Mrs. Callcott back again. But both times Mr. Summers managed to be out of the way, and managed to cast an invisible frost over the rencontre. He was not going to be dragged in. No, he was not. He very much wanted to borrow a pair of pincers and a chopper for an hour, to pull out a few nails, and to split his little chunks of kindling that the dealer had sent too thick. And the Callcots were very ready to lend anything, if they were only asked for it. But no, Richard Lovett wasn't going to ask. Neither would he buy a chopper, because the travelling expenses had reduced him to very low water. He preferred to wrestle with the chunks of Jarrah every morning. Mrs. Summers and Mrs. Callcott continued, however, to have a few friendly words across the fence. Harriet learned that Jack was foreman in a motor-works place, that he had been wounded in the jaw in the war, that the surgeons had not been able to extract the bullet because there was nothing for it to back up against, and so he had carried the chunk of lead in his gizzard for ten months, till suddenly it rolled into his throat and he coughed it out. The jeweller had wanted Mrs. Callcott to have it mounted in a brooch or a hat-pin. It was a round ball of lead, from a shell as big as a marble, and weighing three or four ounces. Mrs. Callcott had recoiled from this suggestion, so an elegant little stand had been made, like a little lamp-post on a polished wood base, and the black little globe of lead dangled by a fine chain like an arc-lamp from the top of the toy lamp-post. It was now a mantelpiece ornament. All this Harriet related to the indignant Lovett, though she wisely suppressed the fact that Mrs. Callcott had suggested, that perhaps Mr. Summers might like to have a look at it. Lovett was growing more used to Australia, or to the cottage in Murdoch Road, and the view of the harbour from the top-top of his summer-house. You couldn't call that all Australia, but then one man can't bite off a continent in a mouthful, and you must start to nibble somewhere. He and Harriet took numerous trips in the ferry-steamers to the many nooks and corners of the harbour. One day their ferry-steamer bumped into a collier that was heading for the harbour outlet, or rather their ferry-boat headed across the nose of the collier, so the collier bumped into them and had his nose put out of joint. There was a considerable amount of yelling, but the ferry-boat slid flatly away towards Manly and Harriet's excitement subsided. It was Sunday, and a lovely sunny day of Australian winter. 
Manly is the bathing suburb of Sydney, one of them. You pass quite close to the wide harbour gate, the Heads, on the ferry steamer. Then you land on the wharf and walk up the street like a bit of Margate with seaside shops and restaurants, till you come out on a promenade at the end, and there is the wide Pacific, rolling in on the yellow sand, the wide, fierce sea that makes all the built-over land dwindle into non-existence. At least there was a heavy swell on, so the Pacific belied its name and crushed the earth with its rollers. Perhaps the heavy, earth-despising swell is part of its Pacific nature. Harriet, of course, was enraptured, and declared she could not be happy till she had lived beside the Pacific. They bought food and ate it by the sea. Then Harriet was chilled, so they went to a restaurant for a cup of soup. When they were again in the street, Harriet realised that she hadn't got her yellow scarf, her big, silky yellow scarf that was so warm and lovely. She declared she had left it in the eating-house, and they went back at once for it. The girls in the eating-house, the waitresses, said in their cheeky Cockney Australian that they hadn't seen it, and that the next people who came after must have taken it. Anyhow, it was gone, and Harriet furious, feeling as if there had been a thief in the night. In this unhappy state of affairs, Summers suggested they should sit on the tram-car and go somewhere. They sat on the tram-car, and ran for miles along a coast with ragged bush, loused over with thousands of small promiscuous bungalows, built of everything from patchwork of kerosene tin up to fine red brick and stucco, like Margate. Not far off the Pacific boomed, but fifty yards inland started these bits of swamp and endless promiscuity of cottages. The tram took them five or six miles to the terminus. This was the end of everywhere, with new stores that is, fly-blown shops with corrugated iron roofs, and with a tram-shelter, and little house-agents' booths plastered with signs, and more cottages. That is, bungalows of corrugated iron or brick, and bits of swamp or lagoon where the sea had got in and couldn't get out. The happy couple had a drink of sticky, aerated waters in one of the stores, then walked up a wide sand road dotted on either side with small bungalows, beyond the backs of which lay a whole aura of rusty tin cans chucked out over the back fence. They came to the ridge of sand, and again the pure, long-rolling Pacific. "'I love the sea,' said Harriet. "'I wish,' said Lovett. It would send a wave about fifty feet high round the whole coast of Australia. "'You are so bad-tempered,' said Harriet. "'Why don't you see the lovely things?' "'I do, by contrast.' So they sat on the sands, and he peeled pears and buried the peel in the yellow sand. It was winter, 
and the shore was almost deserted, but the sun was warm as an English May. Harriet felt she absolutely must live by the sea, so they wandered along a wide rutted space of deep sand, looking at the cottages on either side. They had impossible names, but in themselves many of them were really nice. Yet there they stood, like so many forlorn chicken-houses, each on its own oblong patch of land, and with a fence between it and its neighbour. There was something indescribably weary and dreary about it. The very ground the houses stood on seemed weary and drabbled, almost asking for rusty tin cans, and so many pleasant little bungalows set there in an improvised road, wide and weary. And then the effort had lapsed. The tin shacks were almost a relief. They did not call for geraniums and lobelias, as did pretty Hampstead Garden suburb cottages. And these latter might call, but they called in vain. They got bits of old paper and tins. Yet Harriet absolutely wanted to live by the sea. So they stopped before each bungalow that was to be let furnished. The estate agents went in for abbreviations. On the boards at the corner of the fences it was either for sale or to let. Probably there was a colonial intention of jocularity, but it was almost enough for Summers. He would have died rather than have put himself into one of those cottages. The road ended on the salt pool, where the sea had ebbed in. Across was a state reserve, a bit of Aboriginal Australia, with gum-trees and empty spaces beyond the flat salt waters. Near at hand a man was working away, silently loading a boat with beach-sand upon the lagoon. To the right the sea was rolling on the shore, and spurting high on some brown rocks. Two men in bathing-suits were running over the spit of sand from the lagoon to the surf, where two women in waders, those rubber paddling drawers into which we bundle our children at the seaside, were paddling along the fringe of the foam. A blonde young man, wearing a jacket over his bathing-suit, walked by with two girls. He had huge, massive legs. Astonishing! and near at hand Summers saw another youth lying on the warm sand-hill in the sun. He had rolled in the dry sand while he was wet, so he was hardly distinguishable. But he lay like an animal on his face in the sun, and again Summers wondered at the thick legs. They seemed to run to leg these people. Three boys, one a lad of fifteen or so, came out of the warm lagoon in their bathing-suits, to roll in the sand and play. The big lad crawled on all fours, and the little one rode on his back, and pitched off into the sand. They were extraordinarily like real young animals, mindless as opossums, lunging about. This was Sunday afternoon, 
the sun was warm the lonely man was just pushing off his boat on the lagoon it sat deep in the water half full of sand summers and harriet lay on the sandbank strange it was and it had a sort of fascination freedom that's what they always say you feel free in australia and so you do there is a great relief in the atmosphere a relief from tension from pressure an absence of control or will or form the sky is open above you and the air is open around you not the old closing in of europe but what then the vacancy of this freedom is almost terrifying in the openness and the freedom this new chaos this litter of bungalows and tin cans scattered for miles and miles this englishness all crumbled out into formlessness and chaos even the heart of sydney itself an imitation of london and new york without any core or pith of meaning business going on full speed but only because it is the other end of english and american business the absence of any inner meaning and at the same time the great sense of vacant spaces the sense of irresponsible freedom the sense of do-as-you-please liberty and all utterly uninteresting what is more hopelessly uninteresting than accomplished liberty great swarming teeming sydney flowing out into these myriads of bungalows like shallow waters spreading undiked and what then nothing no inner life no high command no interest in anything finally summers turned over and shut his eyes new countries were more problematic than old ones one loved the sense of release from old pressure and old tight control from the old world of watertight compartments this was sunday afternoon but with none of the surfeited dreariness of english sunday afternoons it was still a raw loose world all sydney would be out by the sea or in the bush a roving unbroken world they all rushed from where they were to somewhere else on holidays and tomorrow they'd all be working away with just as little meaning working without any meaning playing without any meaning and yet quite strenuous at it all it was just dazing even the rush for money had no real pip in it they really cared very little for the power that money can give and except for the sense of power that had no real significance here when all is said and done even money is not much good where there is no genuine culture money is a means to rising to a higher subtler fuller state of consciousness or nothing and when you flatly don't want a fuller consciousness what good is your money to you just to chuck about and gamble with even money is a european invention 
European and American. It has no real magic in Australia. Poor Richard Lovett wearied himself to death, struggling with the problem of himself, and calling it Australia. There was no actual need for him to struggle with Australia. He must have done it in the hedonistic sense, to please himself, but it wore him to rags. Harriet sat up and began dusting the sand from her coat. Lovett did likewise. Then they rose to be going back to the tram-car. There was a motor-car standing on the sand of the road near the gate of the end-house. The end-house was called St. Columb, and Summer's heart flew to Cornwall. It was quite a nice little place, standing on a bluff of sand sideways above the lagoon. "'I wouldn't mind that,' said Harriet, looking up at St. Columb. But Summers did not answer. He was shut against any of these humiliating little bungalows. "'Love's Harbour,' he was just passing by, and it was for sale. It would be. He ploughed grimly through the sand. Arcady. Stella Maris. Rackety Coo. "'I say!' called a voice from behind. It was Mrs. Colcott running unevenly over the sand after them, the colour high in her cheeks. She wore a pale grey crepe de chine dress and grey suede shoes. Some distance behind her, Jack Colcott was following in his shirt-sleeves. "'Fancy you being here!' gasped Mrs. Colcott, and Harriet was so flustered she could only cry, "'Oh, how do you do?' and effusively shake hands, as if she were meeting some former acquaintance on Piccadilly. The shaking hands quite put Mrs. Colcott off her track. She felt it almost an affront, and went red. Her husband sauntered up, and put his hands in his pockets to avoid mistakes. "'Ha! Huh. What are you doing here?' he said to the summer's pair. "'Wouldn't you like a cup of tea?' Harriet glanced at Richard Lovett. He was smiling faintly. "'Oh, we should love it,' she replied to Mr. Colcott. "'But where? Have you got a house here?' "'My sister has the end house,' said he. "'Oh, but will she want us?' cried Harriet, backing out. The Colcotts stood for a moment. "'Yes, if you like to come,' said Jack, and it was evident he was aware of Summer's desire to avoid contact. "'Well, I should be awfully grateful,' said Harriet. "'Wouldn't you love it?' "'Yes,' he said, smiling to himself, feeling Jack's manly touch of contempt for all this hedging. So they went off to St. Columb. The sister was a brown-eyed Australian, with a decided manner, kindly but a little suspicious of the two newcomers. Her husband was a young Cornishman, rather stout and short and silent. He had his hair cut round at the back, in a slightly rounded line above a smooth, sunburnt-reddened nape of the neck. 
Summers found out later that this young Cornishman, his name was Truella, had married his brother's widow. Mrs. Corcott supplied Harriet later on with all the information concerning her sister-in-law. The first Truella, Alfred John, had died two years ago, leaving his wife with a neat sum of money and this house St. Colomb, and also with a little girl named Gladys, who came running in shaking her long brown hair just after the summers appeared. So the present Truellas were a newly married couple. The present husband, William James, went round in a strange, silent fashion, helping his wife Rose to prepare tea. The bungalow was pleasant, a large room facing the sea, with verandas and other little rooms opening off. There were many family photographs, and a framed medal and ribbon and letter praising the first Truella. Mrs. Truella was alert and watchful, and decided to be genteel. So the party sat around in the basket chairs and on the settles under the windows, instead of sitting at table for tea. And William James silently but willingly carried round the bread and butter and the cakes. He was a queer young man, with an Irish-looking face, rather pale, an odd kind of humour in his grey eye and in the corners of his pursed mouth. But he spoke never a word. It was hard to decide his age, probably about thirty, a little younger than his wife. He seemed silently pleased about something, perhaps his marriage. Summers noticed that the whites of his eyes were rather bloodshot, he had been in Australia since he was a boy of fifteen. He had come with his brother from St. Colum, near Newquay, St. Colum Major. So much Summers elicited. "'Well, how do you like Sydney?' came the inevitable question from Mrs. Truella. "'The harbour, I think, is wonderful,' came Summers' invariable answer. "'It is a fine harbour, isn't it?' and Sydney is a fine town. Oh, yes, I've lived here all my life. The conversation languished. Corcott was silent, and William James seemed as if he were never anything else. Even the little girl only fluttered into a whisper and went still again. Everybody was a little embarrassed, rather stiff, too genteel or not genteel enough, and the men seemed absolute logs. "'You don't think much of Australia, then,' said Jack to Summers. "'Why?' answered the latter. "'How am I to judge? I haven't even seen the fringe of it.' "'Oh, it's mostly fringe,' said Jack. "'But it hasn't made a good impression on you.' "'I don't know yet.' My feelings are mixed. The country seems to me to have a fascination. Strange, but you don't take to the Aussies at first sight. Bit of a collision between their aura and yours, smiled Jack. Maybe that's what it is, said Summers. That's a useful way of putting it. I can't help my aura colliding, can I? 
"'Of course you can't. "'And if it is a tender sort of aura, "'of course it feels the bump.' "'Oh, don't talk about it,' cried Harriet. "'He must be just one big bump by the way he grumbles.' "'They all laughed, perhaps a trifle uneasily. "'I thought so,' said Jack. "'What made you come here? "'Thought you'd like to write about it?' "'I thought I might like to live here and write here,' replied Summers, smiling. "'Write about the bush rangers and the heroine lost in the bush "'and wandering into a camp of bullies,' said Jack. "'Maybe,' said Summers. "'Do you mind if I ask you what sort of things you do write?' "'said Jack with some delicacy. "'Oh, poetry, essays.' "'Essays?' "'About what?' "'Oh, rubbish, mostly.' "'There was a moment's pause. "'Oh, love it! Don't be so silly. "'You know, do speak you, don't think your essays rubbish,' put in Harriet. "'They're about life, and democracy, and equality, and all that sort of thing,' Harriet explained. "'Oh, yes,' said Jack. I'd like to read some. Well, hesitated Harriet, he can lend you a volume. You've got some with you, haven't you? she added, turning to Summers. I've got one, admitted that individual, looking daggers at her. Well, you'll lend it to Mr. Colcott, won't you? If he wants it. But it will only bore him. I might rise up to it, you know, said Jack laconically. "'if I bring all my mental weight to bear on it.' Summers flushed and laughed at the contradiction in metaphor. <laughs> "'It's not the loftiness,' he said, rather amused. "'It's that people just don't care to hear some things.' "'Well, let me try,' said Jack. "'We're a new country, and we're out to learn.' <laughs> "'That's exactly what we're not,' broke out William James, with a Cornish accent and a blurt of a laugh. "'We're out to show everybody that we know everything there is to be known.' "'That's some of us,' said Jack. "'And most of us,' said William James. "'Have it your own way, boy. But let us speak for the minority.' and there's a minority that knows we've got to learn a big lesson, and that's willing to learn it. Again there was silence. The women seemed almost effaced. There's one thing, thought Summers to himself. When these colonials do speak seriously, they speak like men, not like babies. He looked up at Jack. "'It's the world that's got to learn a lesson,' he said. "'Not only Australia.' His tone was acid and sinister, and he looked with his hard, pale blue eyes at Colcott. Colcott's eyes, brown and less concentrated, less hard, looked back curiously at the other man. "'Possibly it is,' he said. "'But my job is Australia.' Summers watched him. 
Colcott had a pale, clean-shaven, lean face, with close-shut lips. But his lips weren't bitten in until they just formed a slit, as they so often are in colonials. And his eyes had a touch of mystery, of aboriginal darkness. "'Do you care very much for Australia?' said Summers, a little wistfully. "'I believe I do.' said Jack. But if I was out of a job, like plenty of other unlucky diggers, I suppose I should care more about getting a job. But you care very much about your Australia. My Australia? Yes. I own about seven acres of it, all told. I suppose I care very much about that. I pay my taxes on it all right. No. "'But the future of Australia. "'You'll never see me on a platform shouting about it.' "'The Lovets said they must be going. "'If you like to crowd in,' said Jack, "'we can take you in the car. "'We can squeeze in Mr. Summers in front, "'and there'll be plenty of room for the others at the back, "'if Gladys sits on her dad's knee.' "'This time,' Summers accepted at once. He felt the halting refusals were becoming ridiculous. End of chapter 2, part 1